Would you pray with me before we dive in? Gracious Father, you are good and we love you. And we come before you this morning just wanting to seek you. And God, I know that we are coming from so many different backgrounds and so many different places this morning and so many different points in our journey. And we know that some are coming here just full of enthusiasm for you. There are some in this room who are on fire and have have never been as close to you as they are now, and they are just hungry and excited. And we have others who are broken and struggling and feel like they are in a valley seemingly without end. And there are some this morning, God, that I know who would give anything to feel either of those things because they felt dry and hardened and apathetic. And they don't want to feel that way. So God, I pray that you would stir our hearts here this morning, that you would encourage those in the valley, that you would fan the flame of those who are on fire, and God, that you would awaken those who are asleep. And that you would do it all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we have here in Mark chapter 8 is, is kind of a, a watershed moment in the gospel of Mark. And so this is kind of what we would consider the continental divide um, or the, the midway point. This is a, a turning point in the gospel of Mark. This is the the dividing passage. The first half of Mark has been setting the stage of Jesus going from from place to place, seemingly with no real direction, kind of bouncing across the lake, back and forth, uh, establishing his authority, establishing um, who he is and what he is capable of, and and painting this picture, kind of putting together this puzzle. And, And much like when you're putting together a puzzle where you're trying to figure out, like, okay, what is this picture? What is this looking like? And then there becomes a point where you kind of realize, oh, this is what's going on. And so that's what Mark has been doing in this gospel. He's been building this story all along, putting in pieces of the puzzle. And now is this watershed moment. Now the direction that seemed to be kind of all over the map becomes very clear. And what looked like meandering will become clear focus as Jesus sets his sights on Jerusalem. And he asks a very clear question this morning. And so what I want us to do is just understand what are the questions that he's asking and what are the questions that we need to be asking yourself. He asks the very famous question of who do you say that I am? And the claim that he is making and what he is telling to his disciples is if you say that I am the Christ, then follow me and find life. And the problem throughout history and the problem today is that we buy into lies about who Jesus is and we don't like the path he is on and we don't see the value of what he's offering. That is the issue throughout history and I would be so bold as to say it is the issue in all of our hearts this morning. Who do I say that Jesus is? Do I understand the path that he is leading me on? And do I love what he is offering at the end of that road? 
Those are the questions I hope you will ask this morning, and by God's grace, I pray that the Spirit will give you answers. Verse 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So it's an interesting way for Jesus to start this conversation. He says, who do people say that I am? There are all kinds of things going on around about, around about me. What are they? You tell me some of the things. What are, what are some of the things people are saying about me? And they, they had lots of thoughts. They obviously heard a lot about this. And what's interesting is we don't see all those conversations earlier in Mark. We don't see that. We see some of the wonderings, and you think they're probably wondering. But now we, we see that evidently every time Jesus is doing these things, every time he's working these miracles, whenever he teaches, and they're amazed at his authority, and they're amazed at his healings, that there are a lot of parking lot meetings going on about him. Who is this guy? Who do you think he is? What do you think about him? And they have all these theories. Some like Herod thought that he was John the Baptist reincarnated. Some thought that he was Elijah, which Elijah had always fascinated uh, the Jewish people because he was the one that was taken up with God in this pillar of fire. Like he was, he was in this chariot. He, was, he, was, he didn't die. And so everyone wondered like, well, where did he go? What's he doing? Like, is this possibly Elijah again? And others wondered, is he finally a prophet that is speaking on behalf of God after so many hundreds of years of silence? And so Jesus takes all that in and lets them tell him all the things that other people um, are saying about him. It's an interesting way to get to this question. And I, I think one of the reasons he does that is because he's kind of leading them on this path to then ask them a very pointed question. Because it's very easy to answer what you think other people are thinking. It's much harder to actually give an answer for what you think and what you believe. Have you ever raised a concern to somebody, uh, maybe at work or maybe, you know, in your, in your family or um, I'm sure never at church where you say like, you know, I don't think this, but other people are saying, and you kind of do that and we do that because it's a little safer. Say like, well, you kind of fish with that. Be like, well, you know, other, some people think that what we should do is this. I mean, I, I'm not saying that I think that. I'm just saying that. And it's, it's a way of kind of floating an idea to de detach yourself from it to kind of see what the response is to it. And Jesus is walking them right into this. Who do, who do others say that I am? But then he turns. He says, but who do you say that I am? And here's the crux of the issue for the disciples. Jesus knew all these things were said about him, but as he turns toward Jerusalem, as he begins the walk to his death, he looks into the faces that would take the gospel to the nations and asks, who do you say that I am? Because everything rides on this. It is what would sustain them in the face of persecution. It is what would strengthen them in the face of opposition. It is what would keep them from straying. Who do you say that I am?
And Peter, by the grace of God, answers, you are the Christ. And for the first time in the Gospels, a human declares that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. It's the same story today. Just like then, theories abound on who Jesus is and was. Some say a great teacher. Some say a wonderful moral example. Some say just a regular guy that then was built up by his followers into this huge legend. People have made him out to be a socialist, a Marxist, a capitalist, a Republican, a Democrat, a libertarian, a soldier, a hippie. Pretty much anything that you can think of, that Jesus has been named that in, in the service of some other agenda. People have claimed that Jesus is this other thing. But who do you say that he is? We don't get to go off of what other people say. People say Jesus is all kinds of things. You cannot avoid the question. You will be asked. You can't just ride the coattails of someone else and say like, well, my family's always believed this or I've always thought this was a good idea that other people said. There will come a day where Jesus will face you and he will say, who do you say that I am? This is the question. And just as Jesus looked into the faces that would take his word to the nations, declaring his glory, so he is doing today. In churches all across the world, the word of God is looking directly into the faces of the ones who are charged with taking the gospel to the lost and hurting world. Saying, who do you say he is? Who do you really say that he is? What does your life say about who you say he is? Does your life say that he's a good teacher? One whose counsel is wise and worthy of consideration as I make my own decisions about my life? Is he a moral example, one who should be emulated whenever possible and whenever it makes sense in my own personality, we should try to follow his example? Or does your life say he is the Christ? Everything hinges on that question. The majority of heresies and false teachings throughout the history of the world have started with this question. Who is Jesus? And it's not like he was hiding it. He's claimed at this point, he has claimed authority over demons, over people, over illness, over creation. In Mark 2, we saw that he um, claims the authority to forgive sins. He has the authority to cast out demons. The demons are even declaring that Jesus is the one. We know who you are, Jesus. You are the Holy One of God. And the disciples have been figuring it out, probably hoping against hope. Could this possibly be the one? And they are filled with great fear. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And finally, we get to this place halfway through the Gospel of Mark where Peter finally proclaims, you are the Christ. And it's probably something the disciples have all been wondering and all been thinking, and finally it is said out there. 
And Jesus strictly charges them to tell no one. I think we're going to see why. Verse 31. He began to teach them that the son, of, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. So Jesus, after receiving that proclamation, explains to them the plan. That he must suffer and be killed. This is not at all what the disciples would have expected. Remember, um, many of us know and understand by this point that they thought the Messiah would deliver them from the Roman oppression. So right on the heels of this proclamation is they're wondering, like, are you the one that is here to deliver us? Are you the one who is here to rescue us? Are you the one who's going to establish God's kingdom? But what they meant was delivered from the Roman oppression and and united in the kingdom of, of, of united Israel again, once again. And so on the heels of this proclamation and Jesus affirming this and saying, you are right, They would have expected some plans now to kind of rally the troops. They would have expected him to say, okay, so this is how this is going to take place. All those crowds that were following me and all those crowds that were interested in everything, they're now going to rally and we are going to build an army and we are going to resist the Roman government and we are going to establish Israel once again. But that's not what Jesus says. He tells them plainly, that he must suffer and die. And Peter can't handle it. Verse 32, he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now this is interesting. Because How many times have you thought, if God would just tell me what the plan is, I would follow it? Right? How many times have you and I prayed that prayer? God, just tell me whatever it is. Just tell me whatever it is. Just tell me clearly and plainly. And even as we're studying the Gospel of Mark, we can relate to the frustration of the disciples as he's speaking in parables and and he's saying things that are hidden from certain people. And you get the disciples being like, what was that all about? What was that story about? Like, why don't you just say this plainly? And now he does. He plainly tells them, this is the road that I'm going to walk. No parables, no mysteries, no questions. He tells them plainly, and they hate it. Those who love him most hate it. Peter's plan for the Christ was not the same as God's. He believed Jesus was the Messiah, the one who came to deliver God's people from oppression, but he had his own idea of how that would work. And Jesus tells him why. He says, you have your mind set on the things of man, not on the things of God. 
Peter was settling for something less. And Jesus was offering something far bigger and better than Peter or the other disciples could imagine. And they couldn't see it because they were so fixated on the world. Peter had deliverance in mind, but Jesus had a better deliverance. Peter had life in mind, but Jesus was offering a better life. Peter had peace in mind, but Jesus was offering a better peace. Peter had freedom in mind, but Jesus was offering a better freedom. Peter had his own plan, but it was not the same as God's plan, and Peter rebukes the God in the flesh. And we think, how could he possibly do that? And yet, we do the same thing. How many times have you cried out to God and said, God, this isn't the plan. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. How are you letting this happen to me? Why am I walking this road? Yes, I believe in you, but the plan for me to glorify you is my worldly success and my plans being achieved. Then I can praise you and glorify you. I am convinced that the vast majority of our frustration with God is over the fact that he is not fulfilling our plans. Almost without exception, whenever I deal with someone who is struggling with God's goodness or is angry at God or has felt abandoned by God, almost without exception is because he has not fulfilled something for them that he never promised to do. It is in our own minds, in our own constructs that we have created for God a plan for ourselves and then we are frustrated when he doesn't fulfill it. Because we think, I've got good plans. I have great ideas. I know how this should work out. And then God doesn't fulfill them. I think the biggest lie right now that the evangelical church believes is that Jesus came to bring joy and peace and life by which he must have meant our comfort on this earth. And so we see all kinds of perversions of the gospel filling that desire that we have. The prosperity gospel flourishes that claims those who belong to God will receive financial blessing because we like the idea of being rich better than we like the idea of being poor. The self-help gospel that claims that Jesus exists to help you become a better and more successful you is thriving because we all want to fixate on ourselves and becoming a better version of ourselves. The man-centered gospel that puts the focus on how special I am and how unique I am and how all of my desires must be good because they are my desires is thriving because it feeds all of those things that our flesh wants. And ultimately, that is what Peter thinking. He is assuming that Jesus has come to make all of Peter's dreams come true, not realizing that Jesus has something far better in store. I think I've asked this before, but do me a favor and think, like right now, what is the thing in your life that you most want to be delivered from? 
What circumstance around you or what thing inside of you is the thing that if you could just ask, you cannot imagine something greater than to be delivered from that. Jesus has something better than that. You may not be able to think of anything that could possibly be better than being delivered from that circumstance, but Jesus can Or what is the thing that you want most in life? The thing that you want more than anything else and you just feel you cannot imagine a better thing than this. I mean, go back to being like seven years old at Christmas time. Do you remember your Christmas lists at seven years old? They were ridiculous. Like, I want a pony, I want a boat, I want, I want like a mansion, I want like whatever. Like I just put everything. I, my Christmas lists were 15 pages long when I was seven years old. And the older I got, the smaller that list became. And so go back to seven years old. What is the thing that if you could have anything that you can't imagine something better than this? Jesus has something better than that. And our insistence on defining a Christianity that we are comfortable with that feels manageable to us makes us miss out on the life that Christ is offering and it is paving a path of destruction for many. And this is why Jesus rebukes Peter so harshly because it is so dangerous to our souls and the souls of a lost and hurting world. Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of men. He's saying your lens is all wrong, but he says, get behind me, Satan. He rebukes Peter with the same language that he rebukes Satan in the desert. Think about that. He says the same thing to Peter, his disciple. The rock on which he's going to build the church. Like he's one of the apostles. He's... He's saying the same thing to Peter that he said to Satan. Why? It seems awfully harsh for someone who just proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ. But it's because of this. It's because believing Jesus is the Christ, but defining that term yourself is a more egregious error than not believing at all. A partial truth is worse than a clear lie because it is more dangerous. See, to the Romans, Jesus was just a curiosity, a sideshow, maybe even kind of an intriguing presence. But Jesus never really did much to to correct any of that. But to the religious leaders, Jesus was a threat to the religion they had created And now to the disciples, he is the Messiah that they envision through their own lens. And that is always more dangerous. I mean, after all, look at who Jesus says is going to kill him. Remember, if the disciples are thinking that Jesus has come to overthrow the Roman government, if his life is in danger, who would you assume that his life was in danger at the hands of? Obviously the Romans. But he doesn't say it's the Romans who are going to kill him. He says 
that he will suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. God's people. It was true then and it is true today and I hope you hear this. The greatest threat to Christianity is not found in those who overtly oppose the faith. It is found in those who claim it but do not understand what they are claiming. It has always been that way. If you read through the New Testament, the rebukes are always to the church, not the world. The early church lived in times where all these things, these crazy things were happening around them. They were being, um, they were being oppressed. They were being crucified. They were being fed to wild animals. And so you would think that the New Testament, written to the early church, would be filled with all kinds of instructions of how to fight back against all of those injustices. But it is not. It is written of how to pure, keep the gospel pure and how to love one another well and how to be God's people in the midst of all of that. Paul never rebukes the world. He rebukes the church. Peter rebukes the church. They deal with the church. It is the constant reminder that we are to set our minds on the things of God and not the things of man. That setting our minds and fixating on the culture around us only confuses the gospel. Becoming infatuated and fixated and looking at the world around us as well, that's the problem. If the world would stop persecuting us, then the church would finally flourish. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that. It says that if the church is to flourish, then we must purify the gospel and keep the gospel central and pure within our family. And Paul says this in in 1 Corinthians. He says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? That is is why Jesus rebukes Peter so harshly. And I believe that is why Jesus charges them not to tell anyone. Because they still don't understand. And a half-truth about Jesus is worse than a full lie. The truth of him being the Messiah mixed with the lies that he has come to overthrow the Roman government is worse than those who just don't believe he's the Messiah at all. So he says, I have something better for you. I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you would find life, then follow me. He speaks plainly. And then he turns to the disciples and he says, this is how you'll follow me. He says, who do you say I am? The Christ. Well, if I'm the Christ, then follow me. Verse 34, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He tells them, not only must I die, but so must you if you would follow me. Pick up your cross. We have so twisted that phrase. 
We've talked about like, my cross to bear. I mean, it's a, it's a common, it just, it's, a, it's a saying in our culture today. And it typically just means, it means something like, oh, that's my burden. That's something that I have to carry, something I have to deal with. Maybe it's a physical ailment. Maybe it's a, a frustrating relationship. Whatever it is, we, we turn it into that. But, but the readers of this would not have seen that. They know what happened to Jesus on the cross. And he is writing to a people who are currently being crucified, where many of them are being crucified by Nero on that cross. So this isn't, when Mark's writing this, this is not some kind of vague illustration or metaphor. What he is saying is this is the road that Jesus was on, and it is the road that he is calling us to. It is about dying to ourselves. And these Christians in the Roman church know what he is saying. This is not bearing a burden. This is dying to yourself and following Jesus on the way through suffering. And there's a bit of irony here. Peter wanted to follow Jesus in his own version of the plan. He gave up everything to follow him. In his mind, Jesus was going to reign on earth and Peter would have been happy to follow him on that road. But now that Jesus is speaking plainly, things shift. Jesus is saying, no, you will follow me, but it is into the death. And our nature is to fight to survive. That's what our flesh does. We will say Jesus is the Christ and we will say we love him, but we will fight to preserve our flesh. Christianity does not allow for that. It is an exchange of lives, his for mine. He died for me so that I might live with him. It is an exchange of identities. It's, it's not a merging of identities. It is an exchange. I give up who the world and my sinful heart believe myself to be in exchange for who he says that I am. And I fear that many have been deceived that they have successfully negotiated a truce between the gospel and their flesh. You've figured out a way to be a Christian, but still serve yourself. That's why it's, we so easily fall into the traps of, of false views of Jesus. And so we say things like, if we're honest with ourselves, I love Jesus, but, but I love my stuff. And so I'll call all of my material gain blessing and a reward for faith. And so then I can pursue that without any, without any conviction or anything. I'll just pursue wealth because anything that happens over here, I can say is a blessing from God. And that profanes the gospel that was made not for the rich, but for the poor and the powerless. Or we might say, I love Jesus. Yes, I love Jesus, but I also love my comfort. So I'll shape my faith around what makes sense to me and is easy for me to do and ignore the things that are uncomfortable, which has done great damage in the church when people are confused by their suffering. They assume that because I am suffering right now that I must have chosen the wrong road because this is not the road that I thought God was leading me down. And yet Jesus is speaking plainly. This is the road I'm leading you down. Or I love Jesus, but I love 
my political party and platform. So I'll create this and I will stress all the things in my political platform that are consistent with scripture and ignore or justify the things that the Bible despises. Which makes the world think we are hypocrites because we are passionate about life in some ways but not in others. We care about our own but not about the outsider. We go exactly against what Paul says and we judge the entire world but we, we just ignore our own sin. We seem far more interested in defeating our political enemies than in winning them to Christ. Church, who do you say he is? If he is the Christ, then pick up your cross and follow him and receive life. Look at verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Listen, there is no plan B for us. There is no different version of Christianity where I get to maintain everything that I want and still follow Jesus. It doesn't work that way. He is telling them plainly, you must lay down your life. Then if you do, you will save it. But if you seek to preserve it, you'll lose everything. Matthew 13 says the disciples came and said to Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Listen, anything you think that you are preserving by holding back from radical obedience to Jesus Christ is going to be lost. It's going to be lost anyway. But when you find your joy in Christ, then that will continue to grow and grow for all eternity. And it will never be taken away from you. Jesus goes on in that chapter and says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I've said before so many times that this parable to me was more life transforming to me than anything else. This one verse in the Bible that the man who sold all he owned in his joy, he did not grumble and complain as he's selling his stuff. He didn't say like, oh, I hope, I hope this is worth it because man, I really hate to give away this stuff. He didn't check in multiple times. Like, do I have enough to buy the field? Am I not there yet? Okay, I still have to sell more? Okay, I'll sell a little bit more. Now do I have enough? None of it. He sees the treasure as so beautiful and so valuable and so amazing that he goes and he goes, I don't care what it costs me. I'm giving up everything. And he can't wait to unload it. He's taking whatever price he can get to unload everything so that he can go back and get that field and get that treasure. Bearing the cross Picking up your cross and following Jesus is not some way of paying God back for your sins. It is not Jesus saying, well, this is your punishment. It is Jesus saying, this is the way to treasure 
follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says this. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. But it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And in that death, we have the beginning of communion with Christ. And that is everything. Jesus says that though he will die, he will rise again. And he did. And he says, though you will lay down and lose your life, you will find it. And it is of more worth than the whole world. It is a treasure hidden in a field. Can you imagine being in the first century and hearing that as you have had loved ones who have been crucified and killed? And here Mark is writing to them and saying, it's worth it. Whatever road Jesus leads you on is worth it. Do you believe that? Who do you say he is? Is he a teacher or prophet or crazy man? Or do you say he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord? If he is, then follow him. Get your mind off of your own plans and your own ideas. They're perishing anyway and follow him. His plans are better. One way this plays out in real life is this. Every time you are led on that road of suffering, our typical bent is to question God, to doubt him, to say, where are you? But what if we saw it as God's faithfulness? What if when we were doing that, we actually looked at what Jesus said and be like, oh, you said this would happen. Look at how many times in the New Testament the, the authors say things like, do not be surprised at the fiery trials set before you or count it all joy when you face these trials and persecutions and all these different things. And Jesus saying, if they did this to me, what do you think they're going to do to you? So we need to stop being surprised and see it actually as God's faithfulness and saying what he has said will come to pass is coming to pass. And if this is coming to pass, then so also will the rewards and the joy that he offers us. What if we saw all those things as an opportunity to see that Jesus is better, an opportunity to glorify God and declare his sufficiency? Look, this is hard, and it was hard for me to write it because I had to face it myself. But when you suffer and get angry at God, you are rebuking Jesus for the road he has laid out for you. I've had to come to face to face with that over the last few weeks. You are rebuking him for the road he has walked and is asking you to follow him down. But when we are truly abiding in Christ, then every trial is an opportunity to declare the worth of Jesus. Every time you are slandered, it is an opportunity to demonstrate that your identity is in Christ. And we lose that opportunity when we whine about how people are slandering us. Every time you are wronged, it is an opportunity to demonstrate the forgiveness that is found in Christ rather than trying to justify ourselves 
and repay wrong for wrong. Every time your financial situation takes a hit, it's an opportunity to display how God is the great provider. Every time your child misbehaves, it's an opportunity to show them how gracious and and patient their father is and how he receives the repentance. And every time you sin against others, it's an opportunity to show them how to repent. You become a person who is unshakable, who is not swayed by their circumstances, who, like Paul, are content in all circumstances. And this all comes through the great treasure of communion with Christ. To know him deeply and richly, to be known by him and loved by him. That is what gives peace that surpasses all understanding. That's what fills your joy, your life with a joy that is inexpressible. And it is so much better. That thing that you said you wanted to be delivered from more than anything else, and that you can't imagine anything better, Jesus can. Who do you say he is? And pick up your cross and follow him and receive true deliverance. Or that thing that you wanted more than anything, you can't imagine anything better than that, Jesus can. Who do you say he is? If he is the Christ, then pick up your cross and follow him and receive life. This is how Paul says he can count all things as lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. That is how he can be content. That's how John longs to see Jesus face to face. And it's why we sing the songs of worship and praise that we do. Because we are set free from our sin. We are set free from finding our identity and our successes and failures or what others say about us. We are set free from needing the praises of people. We are set free from the selfishness that sabotages our own lives and our own relationships. And it is what sets us free to live a life that is spent and poured out to love God and love others, and so doing, declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. So that's what he's asking. Jesus, here before our church family, looking into the faces of those who are charged with declaring his glory and the worthiness of this treasure to a lost and hurting world who desperately needs it, asking Who do you say that I am? Let's pray. Father God, we cannot possibly grasp all that you are or all that you have done, but you have revealed so much. And though we cannot ever know you fully, we can know you truly through your word. And as we look at the life of Jesus and what, Jesus, you are calling us to, I pray that we would look at you and we would say you are the Christ. And that we would follow you on the path that you have set about. And we would see that what you are offering is more valuable than anything else we could ever possibly gain on our own. God, we desperately need eyes to see that and minds that would understand it and hearts that would love it. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.